Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, and I'm your host, Jill Messino. Today I'll be speaking with Professor Marko Dumancic about his new book, Men Out of Focus, The Soviet Masculinity Crisis in the Long 60s, which was published by University of Toronto Press just this year in 2021. Welcome, Marko. Thank you, Jill. Dr. Dumancic is an Associate Professor of History at Western Kentucky University, where he is also director for the Center for Innovative Teaching and Learning. In 2010, he received his PhD in Russian and Eastern European history with a minor in gender studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. His scholarship focuses on modern Russia and Yugoslavia with a particular emphasis on the central role played by gender in these countries' national histories. He teaches courses on Russian history, the history of genocide, and the history of cinema with a focus on queer cinema. So Marco, maybe you can begin by telling our listeners how you became interested in this topic. I think uh, what's interesting about the story was a roundabout way of becoming interested in Soviet masculinity in particular. In the mid-1990s, I remember reading an article, and I believe it was in The New Yorker, that talked about how the AIDS epidemic affected men's appearances, particularly in uh, metropolitan centers such as New York, San Francisco, um, and Miami. And the theory went that when the AIDS crisis hit uh, the gay uh, urban metropolises of New York, San Francisco, and Miami, What was interesting is that once steroids became available for men who were HIV positive, soon men who had HIV started looking more healthy and more buff uh, than men who were HIV negative. And it really propelled this culture of bodybuilding and gyms and general fitness. And this process really... uh, struck me as important because it made visible for me the ways in which men's roles and understanding of what constitutes a masculine ideal looked like. So in that sense, uh, I was super interested to figure out how this process worked in different national contexts. And One of the ways that I thought would be really interesting to put this kind of process in perspective was the Soviet Union after the death of Stalin. And my hypothesis was that in this moment of cultural and political and social rupture after Stalin's death in 1953, there ought to have been some sort of change in gendered ideals of the country. And that's really where my interest in in this topic and where this book came out of and 
I started really looking at this process uh, in my undergraduate um, thesis. Um, so it, it is safe to say that this book has been in the making for about 15 years. Yeah, and I mean, that comes across. It's clear you put a lot of time and thought into this book. And of course, you draw on a wide array of sources, um, various forms of popular culture in addition to film. And it was such an enlightening and enjoyable read, I must say. Okay, so why don't we begin by discussing uh, the chapters in the book? Uh, I'd like to begin with the introduction. And the introduction is entitled, Soviet Men in Need of Saving. So my question here is, why was it that Soviet men were in need of saving? That is, why did the state believe that? Um, and what was the means by which they were to be saved? And then as a follow-up, was this a particularly Soviet problem? I was pretty lucky in my research to have come across this article that was titled uh, Protect the Men or Safeguard the Men, uh, Birgitta Mushin, which came out in 1968. And uh, in it, a demographer, uh, Urlanis, made an argument that Soviet men uh, suffered from uh, higher mortality rates and lived shorter lives than their female counterparts. And he argued that society should take a more active role in men's well-being. And he argued that uh, women in particular should take an active role uh, lest they remain without partners and fathers. And what was even more interesting than Urlanis's article was the response, uh, and particularly for, from several female journalists who argued that certainly we can call this uh, a crisis of men or a male crisis, but they noted that men had only themselves to blame for their condition, that given the high mortality rates and, and shorter lifespans and, and higher suicide rates and higher incidence of injury at work, um, that these were not results of a lackluster care from society or for women in particular, uh, but that uh, men should start taking care of themselves better. And in particular, which is not surprising for the Russo-Soviet context, that men should probably start drinking less, showing up uh home earlier and helping around the house. And that would probably be much better for men than, uh, than uh, making sure that women were taking care, better care of their, of their husbands and fathers and sons. So I thought it was a, a particularly interesting cultural moment um, when um, a, a kind of a, a gender wars that uh, took place in the United States at the same time. And Looking at the appearance of this article in 1968, I made the argument that the conditions for this kind of argument that Orlanis made actually started taking place much earlier, and that the roots of this crisis uh, actually began manifesting themselves pretty soon after Stalin's death in 1953. And so that's the, that's the crisis that I'm talking about, uh, its origins, and then its culmination in 1968, when this crisis was given a name and a voice. Yeah, and um, you noted that 
you saw these parallels between what was happening in the 80s in the Soviet Union and in the US. And certainly what you describe in that introductory chapter about this crisis in masculinity in the 1980s was characteristic of, I would argue, the, the Eastern Bloc as well, right? So other Eastern European countries. But back to the, the 60s when you're locating this, uh, would you say that this was a particularly Soviet problem? Or would you, would you argue that this crisis in masculinity, this idea of men in, in need of being saved, was um, characteristic of, of other countries at the time? I think what I, uh, in, in the book, I argue that it's, it's a pan-European crisis, and I think it even stretched beyond the continent and into the United States. And the reason I argue this is that often when we talk about Soviet history, for good reason, we focus on the legacies of World War II and de-Stalinization. And this crisis, while certainly conditioned in no small part by the process of de-Stalinization, I think was much more significantly influenced by a second wave of modernization that came after Stalin. So I make the point that uh, Khrushchev, who succeeded Stalin, uh, actually set in motion a number of processes that made men uncertain about their position in society. So for example, it is by now well known that um, the, these idea of sort of a goulash communism that, or, hum, or communism with a human face, that this transformation from a Stalinist society of deficits was supposed to give way to a urban, cosmopolitan, consumerist society. And in these conditions, uh, there was uh, less space left for men, or at least not as much space as much as they used to enjoy uh, in the pre-war period. In particular, with women being consumers in chief, um, we, women were given a much more important role in the economy as the, the main thrust of a consumerist world. And so given the changes in uh, emphasis on consumerism and then the increased level of technological sophistication of societies and then um, the increased call for making public spaces democratized. So um, making space for the younger generation uh, and uh, uh, particularly for women. So I think men across the continent and the United States found themselves in this strange shifting world um, and they could no longer control technology because it had become so sophisticated. They found themselves challenged by the younger generation who felt that they needed uh, more agency, uh, more autonomy. And then, of course, women who had much more of an economic role to play in post-war consumerism. And I think these conditions were similar, um, whether one lived in the Soviet Union, in England, France, or the United States. So I think it's an interesting moment in the post-war world that wasn't entirely conditioned by the Cold War. Yeah, and one of the things I really appreciated about the book was this comparative approach that you place Soviet film within a broader European context, which allows us to see the differences, but also the similarities in approaches to, to filmmaking, as well as subject matter. 
And uh, on the topic of subject matter, I'd like to talk specifically about a character that emerged in 60s film. And this was the superfluous man. Um, and you refer to this as superfluous masculinity. So could you tell our listeners what type of traits, uh, characteristics would have been associated with this form of masculinity and why it was significant? So um, that's an excellent question. Um, superfluous uh, a superfluous man is a concept that I borrowed from uh, the 19th century uh, Russian Empire. And the notion of a superfluous man or Lishny Chalviek uh, came about in the middle of the 19th century in Russia, in part because of the first wave of industrialization and this questioning of what role do Russian men, and in this case, particularly Russian nobility play in this rapidly uh, modernizing world. And it is a particular kind of man that um, who has few ideals that he holds sacred and is mostly an observer in a rapidly changing world. The character that's most famous for this in uh, in Imperial Russian literature is uh, called Oblomov, and um, he is most famous for uh, his reclining position in which he contemplates action but never actually commits any action. And so I found that the way men were portrayed in the 1960s in the Soviet Union is very similar to that of Oblomov and the superfluous man. And I argue that it's possible to see this superfluous man not only as a particularly Russian phenomenon, but that we could see it, for example, in the figure of the man in the gray flannel suit. Um, and in the United States, the man with the gray flannel suit is the man who lives in suburbia and commutes in his gray flannel suit to um, go to his job in downtown New York or London or LA and basically is forced to work for a paycheck so he can afford the kind of lifestyle his wife and children demand of him. So uh, it is a man who sacrifices himself and has nothing but a paycheck to support the lifestyle his children and wife have grown accustomed to. And so uh, this superfluous man is somebody who plays a role, but only insofar as he's supporting the consumerist lifestyles uh, of others, particularly those people who are supposed to be closest to him. And so, um, and he is forced into this, into this position because there are no longer any ideals left to live for and believe in. And it's all come down to a kind of a rat race. So I thought that this concept of uh, superfluous manhood uh, fit perfectly within this context um, in the sense that men found themselves displaced and, as the title of the book suggests, out of focus. Yeah, I was thinking of the term rat race when you were describing that and also just kind of lacking authenticity, right? A reason for being. Okay, so before we go on to discuss the chapters, could you tell us about 
the sources uh, that you use to construct this narrative. So obviously, it's centrally focused on film. And um, could you tell us why you chose film as your lens of analysis, and then also discuss some of the other sources you draw on for this book? Absolutely. I, besides just being a uh, a cinema fan, um, a cinephile, I realized that in 1950s and 1960s, um, I think you can really call this the, the golden age of Soviet cinema. And it, I think it deserves this title for two reasons. One, um, under Stalin, there were uh, only about a dozen movies released in the final three years of Stalin's rule. And by the end of the 1950s, the Soviet film industry released over a uh, hundred feature films every year. So there was a tr- dramatic output increase uh, when it comes to movies, and in part because Soviet citizens uh, flocked to the movies um, either several times a month and in some cases several times a week. So cinema and movie theaters became a cultural staple in Soviet social life. And in terms of ticket sales, it was not uncommon for films to have sold between uh, 20 and 35 million tickets. And over the course of a year, uh, uh, 3 billion uh, visits to movie theaters were made by Soviet citizens. So it was an incredibly important aspect of uh, Soviet cultural life at the time. But I also wanted to make sure that I was understanding and reading these films as closely as would have the contemporaries of the Soviet Union. So in order to get to that, I used uh, archival documents And in particular, I wanted to understand how uh, administrators and party members understood and interpreted these films. So I read transcripts of movie premieres that were followed by a general discussion of films. I read censorship reports and general reports from the Ministry of Culture. And I followed this up by reading general newspapers um, such as Izviestia, Pravda, and wanted to get a sense of what else was happening in society that this that these movies could be addressing. So, for example, if I noticed that there was a cluster of films that talked about single motherhood, uh, I tried to scour the newspapers to see how people were talking about parenthood and motherhood and single motherhood in particular, so I could get a sense of the cultural framework within which these movies were created. So I tried as much as I could not only to understand uh, how people talked about these films, but also to understand the cultural framework within which these movies were made. So uh, archival documents, newspapers, the satirical journal Crocodil, and then two journals that specifically were dedicated to cinema, Sovietsky Ekran, which was more for a general audience, and then Iskustva Kinoa, which was really dedicated to film professionals. So I try to get at 
moviegoers, I try to understand filmmakers, and then I try to understand uh, the party and its administrators and try to get as many different kinds of voices as I could from the evidence that we uh, have access to. Yeah, and I'm drawing on these multiple perspectives really helps to provide a, a more complex portrait of what's going on within society, um, larger shifts within the country. And before I forget, I wanted to mention that you draw on a lot of interesting sociological research. And of course, this research is being produced in the West, in the U.S., but also in various countries in the bloc. I also wanted to note before I forget that there's some fantastic images you include in the book, particularly um, images from the satirical magazine Crocodile, and I really enjoyed them. So just wanted to mention that as well. Okay, so let's move on to chapter one. And in this chapter, you examine Stalinist masculinity and you discuss how it underwent transformation. So can you talk a bit about how these changes are manifested on cinema screens and also talk about the broader changes that were occurring in the country, obviously political changes that provided filmmakers with the space, the creative space to be able to present alternative visions of masculinity that you would not have seen during the Stalinist time? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so one one factor that one cannot escape when talking about the 60s is uh, the death of Stalin. And uh, not just the literal death, but the demise of Stalin as a character uh, because his masculinity was unsurpassable. Um, the idea was that with his death, now men no longer had to be compared to Stalin, but could exist outside of this realm of comparison. So that it just opened up a whole other kind of space for how to understand Soviet masculinity now that the ultimate father of the peoples was dead. So I think that was that was an incredibly important moment and without which none of this would have happened. Uh, the second really important one was the burgeoning independence of the filmmakers themselves. And um, in 1957, they created a uh, organizing committee for their would-be union. So the union came later, but nonetheless, this organizing committee was incredibly important in galvanizing different generations of filmmakers and filmmakers from different republics to have a unified front against uh, the interference of the authorities so that they were able to collectively argue and bargain for the release of films that were troublesome to the authorities. And they were incredibly effective in arguing their case. The third thing was that uh, like in a lot of Europe, particularly Italy, France, uh, and Great Britain, there arose this uh, need for what in Soviet cinema was called uh, a call for sincerity. And it also accompanied literature as well, but it was a form of de-Stalinization and a pretty strong call to try to depict life as it truly was and move away from the ornamentalism of the uh, Stalinist era. Um, the fourth 
incredibly significant part was a creation of a true popular film culture. And it was embodied in this popular magazine, uh, Sovietsky Ekran. And uh, if you looked at it today, it is it would it would be um, sort of a a journal that is dedicated to fan culture, and it was replete with photographs of film shoots of people's favorite movie stars, whether they be Soviet or foreign. And it was particularly famous for not just being read, but also people would decorate their rooms. Uh, with photographs and pictures from from the journal, and so it was it was truly ubiquitous and one of the most popular journals in the Soviet Union overall. And subscriptions to that magazine were very much coveted. And then finally is what you what you mentioned in in the last comment, and that is the rise of sociological research. So whereas before. Administrators and party members often talked generally about an abstract Soviet people and an abstract movie-going audience. Sociologists could now go into um, into the country and collect actual data on on the preferences of the movie-going public. So, in that sense, it gave further. Uh, buttress to the filmmakers who could use that material to argue for a cinema that was more responsive to audiences and, and moviegoers. So I think collectively there was so much that happened in the early uh, to mid-1950s that enabled the movie industry to become fundamentally different than it was under Stalin and it is this film industry that was reconstituted that was then able to provide Soviet moviegoers with a new model of masculinity. Could you maybe just um, talk about a film in which you see this new version of masculinity being represented? There, there are so many. I will uh, just one is fine. Yeah, for now. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I will say first there, you know, uh, if we're talking about this this drastic change, um, one of the more famous movies of the Stalinist period is uh, about Pavel Kochagin. And this he is, of course, a party member who, uh, despite being uh, paralyzed and blind and otherwise disabled, um, wants to continue fighting for the party and the greater good. And... In post-honest period, you have the exact opposite of, um, for example, in the movie that was uh, initially released under the title of uh, Ilich's Gate and then renamed um, I Am 20. The protagonists spend most of the film uh, in conversation with each other and themselves about what the purpose of life is. And so you have this dramatic shift of depicting men in a struggle to realize the ideals in which they firmly believe and they're willing to give up their lives for to men who spend most of their days wondering what those ideals should be and if ideals exist at all. 
So there's a pretty dramatic shift in the way uh, men are depicted uh, in terms of how they spend their lives. Yeah, and so men are clearly in the midst of this existential crisis and they're plagued by self-doubt, uncertainty. And uh, as you clearly illustrate, this is not obviously just a Soviet phenomenon, but something that is pan-European and even goes beyond the bounds uh, of Europe. Uh, Okay, let's move on to chapter two now. And in this chapter, you explore the relationship between fatherhood and socialist citizenship. So could you tell us uh, about how fatherhood is depicted in Soviet film in the 1960s? Yes. So I will will first say that what is essential to understand about this shift um, is that in the 1940s, after World War II, the government was very much uh, interested in uh, pronatalist policies that um, in the 1940s, uh, there was a law in which that allowed men to have uh, children out of wedlock for whom they didn't have to be responsible. So if they had a child in a non-registered marriage, they were in no way responsible for the upbringing or upkeep of that child. And that child did not carry the man's last name. And it was in the terms of the time illegitimate. And so this really led to a kind of libertinism uh, among men. And there was a grave concern uh, in the 1950s that this law had essentially led to what they called deadbeat dads. And the reaction to this was evident in movies that insisted that men should take uh, fatherhood seriously and not any kind of fatherhood, but empathetic and compassionate fatherhood. And there was this uh, really interesting movie about a, um, a criminal who was sent to the gulag for his uh, for his crimes, and he escapes the gulag before his term, and goes back to his native city of Leningrad and tries to go back to his old ways. And so, even though he's clearly a hardened criminal, and neither his friends nor his former uh, lover can persuade him to find his way and become an upstanding citizen, uh, he meets his son, um, who he didn't know he had. And it is at the moment at which he sees his son that he realizes that he needs to become an upstanding man, not for himself, not for his comrades, not for his lover, but for his son, that he should be a man of whom his son can be proud. And so it is this curious resolution to the story And it is the son who becomes the reason for the criminal's transformation. And so there is a plethora of movies in which young sons prove to have the same kind of influence on their fathers. And so in direct contrast to the Stalinist period, where fathers were essential to the life of sons, in the 60s, the sons become essential to, to men and their definition of masculinity. So it became impossible to think of masculinity as being divorced from uh, being a father. 
Yeah. And so it's, uh, it's a reversal in a way of these roles. And um, I saw it in the Romanian case too, where you have this transition from authoritarian parenting to authoritative, right? So that it's not so uh, oriented towards discipline and punishment, but rather involved parenting. And as you note, a parenting in which the parents themselves learn from the children. I just had a follow-up question because you discussed this as well in the chapter, how the idea of fatherhood is defined in this period. So in, in a sense, biological fatherhood is not necessarily the most important facet of it. You talk a lot about non-biological fathers. So could you talk a little bit about how that plays out in film? Absolutely. I, I think that was the most fascinating find uh, early on in my research there was a cluster of films in which um, adult men found their way somehow to to sons, and it was always sons, never daughters, um, who were who were not biologically tied to them, but um, exercised the same kind of influence, ennobling influence that uh, fathers with biological children did. And what that seems to emphasize is that fatherhood wasn't something uh, that was granted automatically. So being a good father meant that it had to be earned. Uh, and in fact, there, was a, there were a couple of films in which um, the biological father reappears on the scene wanting to reestablish connection with his biological children, uh, but in the resolution, it is made clear that the biological father had not earned the right to be a father. And in fact, the adopted father was the quote unquote true father with whom the children had a real bond. So there was, there was an emphasis on not only compassionate fatherhood, but also um, on a fatherhood that was, that was consistent and built on consensus and agreement. So that Soviet filmmakers really raised the bar on what it meant to, to be a father. And uh, that's why in part the chapter is called Fatherhood is Not for Sissies, because you saw in these films that the drama really lay in the man's struggle to, to be a good father and to uh, execute that role well. So it was clear that Soviet filmmakers understood that this is not something that necessarily came naturally to their compatriots, but they believed that it was so important that they made dozens of movies about fatherhood as a condition worthy of exploring in, in both comedies and dramas. Yeah, and on that, let's move on to chapter three, where you continue your discussion of the father-son relationship, and you connect this with raising male youth in the 1960s, and this notion that there are all these young men who really don't have a sense of identity, um, and that they don't really have a life-defining event. And then you introduce the topic of the, the Virgin Lands campaign, and how this offers young people uh, an opportunity for renewed masculine heroism. So could you tell us about that? Yes. I, the, the reason why I loved um, writing that chapter is that I think the Soviet Union often gets overlooked 
in 60s literature because it didn't have as pronounced of a counterculture or at least a counterculture in the way that it appeared in the West. And I think that's being addressed in scholarship more frequently. But essentially, I wanted to draw attention to the fact that there was a generational conflict between the uh, wartime generation and the post-war generation that came after. And there, there are two concepts that seem to play around uh, in in the press and the films of the time. And one is uh, a generational relay. So this idea that uh, in communist societies, fathers passed on the baton to their sons and the sons to their sons, uh, again, in almost exclusively male terms, uh, that there was this honorable tradition um, stemming you know, going back to the revolution of men passing the baton to each other and that this was somehow an equal relay. And it clearly breaks down in the 1960s and you get these complaints about the younger generation not having what it takes to build a communist society. And uh, you can, you can, you, you, you could see it in newspaper articles, in journals, and obviously in movies. And as much as Soviet propaganda tried to emphasize that there was absolutely no such thing as generational conflict in the Soviet Union, and that was a condition reserved for capitalist societies, you could tell in their multiple complaints that there were many problems in the ways generations talked to each other and the way they related to each other. And so uh, one of the most famous films of, of the period was Ilich's Gate or, or I Am 20. And this is the movie that opened the floodgates in talking about generational conflict. And so it came down to this one scene. It features an improbable reunion between a young protagonist, Sergei, and the ghost of his father who died during the Second World War when he was only 21. And even though Sergei has no living memory of his father, Sergei asks for his father's advice on how to live. The ghost then counsels Sergei that uh, one must simply live, uh, so pretty general, broad. And then when Sergei urges his father to reveal exactly how one should live, the father responds with a question and asks, how old are you? And when Sergei tells his father he is 23, the ghost replies, well, I'm only 21. How am I supposed to help you? And that's where the father disappears and the, the dream ends. And Nikita Khrushchev, uh, upon seeing the film, said that this is impossible, that there doesn't exist a scenario in which a father would not counsel his son on how to live. And rejected the idea, of course, that the Soviet uh, generation of the 60s um, was any less um, dedicated to the ideals of communism than previous generations. And this is really the crux of, of the chapter of this idea that uh, the wartime generation and the post-war generation really don't see eye to eye and that the younger generation is looking for its own ideals since it wasn't able to participate in World War II and prove themselves in that way. 
and the replacement for World War II becomes the Virgin Lands campaign, where the youth are supposed to, especially the men, are supposed to prove their valor, their virility, and their masculinity. And the Virgin Land campaign becomes this battlefield uh, for them where they're supposed to prove themselves. And um, unfortunately, it doesn't it doesn't go quite um, as the authorities plan, and the generational conflict reappears in movies and plays about the Virgin Lands campaign. And in the end, um, the '60s culture is in the Soviet Union as much as it was in the West, really defined by this generational conflict that's that's marred by misunderstanding and a lack of communication. Yeah, what I found interesting about your depiction of that is um, some of the images you used, they were so sexualized. And of course, it's a failure. <laughs> so that's it's kind of an emasculating end. Okay, a follow-up on that is, uh, for that chapter, is um, has to do with Hamlet fever. So what was that and why is it significant? Yes, um, the Hamlet fever, um, Hamletism was a, a term, Hamletism was a term used for uh, indecisiveness. And um, Hamlet became one of the most uh, popularly produced uh, theater plays and in part because Stalin thought that uh, Hamlet was a travesty and there was absolutely no need to, um, to uh, show Hamlet on the stage. But really the, what the appeal of Hamlet was for the 1960s is that it perfectly embodied this younger generation uh, who had the mistrust of their fathers and felt that they were participating in a system that was in some senses um, unfair at best and corrupt at worst. So that in addition to um, Hemingway and Jack London, uh, Hamlet became a byword and a synonym for the 60s in general. And a lot of not, not only young men, but uh, men in general felt that Hamlet's doubt and self-reflection is what made him an incredibly attractive role model. And I think, I think we can see some of Hamlet in, in James Dean, Rebel Without a Cause. And so I think that much like James Dean character in the United States in the 1950s, uh, the Hamlet could be um, the, the, a sort of a Soviet James Dean for the young generation um, in terms of them inventing their, their own argo their own ways of thinking and approaching the world that um, they wanted to make their own and not follow in their father's footsteps. So this rebellious generation, but also this kind of brooding generation, right? And trying to just find their way somehow, but they're facing all these challenges in the meantime. I think you said it exactly right. We think of counterculture in terms of rebellion, but I think rebellion can come in many different shapes and sizes. And this brooding, which was often very passive and contemplative, was actually seen as treasonous to the Soviet authorities because they understood everything in terms of action and battles, right? The Virgin Land campaigns was, was a battle and was, was portrayed as such. And the fact that the 
youth of the Soviet Union was so brooding and uh, from the outside passive um, made them rebellious. And that was the brooding was, in a sense, the very essence of rebellion. Right. And of course, a good socialist was supposed to be optimistic. So you weren't supposed to be brooding. And that was that was too self-indulgent. Absolutely. Um, something you do in a capitalist country. Okay, uh, let's move on to chapter four, where you look at uh, the modern woman. So you look at modern women's uh, effect on men's identities and notions of masculinity. Can you tell us a bit about why this modern woman was so dangerous uh, to men during this period and to ideas about masculinity? And then as a follow-up on that, talk about the idealized woman. This was uh, a, a fascinating chapter for me because I actually followed the lead um, from my Americanist counterparts who talked about the incredible levels of misogyny even among the more activist and liberal groups in the United States and Western Europe. And when I was looking through Crocodile, what I was stunned to see is the the same kind of misogyny um, within a particularly Soviet and Russian framework. And what you saw uh, to a great extent uh, were two misogynistic tropes. One was of a gold digger who was dedicated to living the life of affluence and luxury um, by ensnaring men with their wily charms. And the second one was of a shrewdish uh, matriarch so that there seemed to be a line of reasoning that women spent most of their time ensnaring men and then within marriage, making sure that their will was done and uh, domineering men in marriage, not just by dominating them, but also making sure that by raising obedient sons, they had a full control over the household. And this was reflected not only in many cartoons in Crocodile, and in short stories in newspapers, uh, but was also evident on the film screen, and which was replete with, with characters of, um, of women whose main preoccupation seemed to be um, in, uh, in, in cha- enchanting and ensnaring men uh, into their schemes. And they were mostly concerned with living the life of comfort. And this was as evident in in Soviet films as it was in in, in British and U.S. films, which were also very much concerned that urban life in particular that was defined by comfort and trinkets and baubles and and modern inventions was really uh, the sanctuary of this modern woman whose main preoccupation was gaining access, access to not only material things, uh, but also services and, um, and experiences. And thus men turned simply into a vehicle for fulfilling their lovers and their wives' uh, needs and wants. Yeah, do you think you could give us a title or two? 
Absolutely. Um, actually, the cover of the book is from a, uh, a comedy called Three Plus Two, and it features this very strange plot in which three men decide to escape civilization and live like um, Robinson Crusoe, and they decamp in on the Black Sea uh, on an empty beach, and they don't shave, they don't smoke, um, although they do sleep in a very comfortable Muscovich, and spend their days only in each other's company. And so their definition of civilization uh, is defined not only by the absence of comfort, but also by the absence of women. And as you may not be surprised, uh, soon after they establish camp, two women appear on the scene. And um, metaphorically and literally, one of, the, one of them is a, um, a, works in a circus and works with tigers. And her philosophy is that if she can tame tigers, she can also, also tame men. And indeed, um, despite the uh, gender wars that ensue on the beach, eventually two of the men fall in love with the two women. And in the process of falling in love with them, they start shaving, they start smoking, they start taking them out to dates in the city that's nearby their beach, and eventually abandon their small male uh, anti-civilization utopia. And it's clear that it is the women who won the day by getting the men to uh, break their male bond and their decision to abandon civilization through this um, quote-unquote mating game. And so yeah, this is one of the movies that became very popular and was actually uh, shown uh, in the lead-up to uh, the summer uh, season in the Soviet Union, and it remained a very popular comedy and film um, for the general populace. Yeah, and so it begs the question, who is the weaker sex, right? Uh, uh, absolutely. And there was, uh, there was another movie that, that talked about this, um, this chemist who gave up his honorable um, career in order to make money on the black market by cleaning uh, clothes uh, on the side with his knowledge of, of chemistry and chemical cleaning. Um, and he was depicted many times as a sellout uh, and many scenes by wearing an apron uh, in the kitchen. And it was clear that that's not where he belonged, but it was his need to live comfortably in a consumer society that, that led him down this path. So it was, it was a trap that um, both gender gravitated towards, but that uh, women were seen as agents of. And this, this misogyny was, was pretty clear um, throughout the long 1960s. Yeah, and that consumerism is a feminine practice, so it's emasculating for men. Okay, let's move on to Chapter 5, where you examine the relationship between science and masculinity. So could you talk a bit about how increased state promotion of science and technology affects uh, men's self-identities and also their interpersonal relationships at least according to popular culture and specifically film? So science was, is, was stereotypically associated with 
um, with masculinity. It was supposed to be this this masculine domain. And uh, in in the Stalinist period, science was more associated with uh, geologists and men who conducted science, you know, in the great outdoors. Um, and under Khrushchev, with um, with our friend the atom and um, the beginnings of the atomic age, nuclear physicists became the embodiment of the ideal masculinity because they were supposed to be the masters of space that nobody could see. And uh, the irony of the nuclear physicist as the embodiment of modern, truly modern Soviet masculinity was the fact that the movie still depicted the nuclear physicist as relatively impotent um, in two ways. One, uh, many movies showed these men as being incapable of really fighting the bureaucrats who knew nothing about science. And so they were hampered uh, left and right by uh, administration and bureaucracy who that was more interested in um, ideology than there were in the eternal truths of science. And uh, on the other hand, they were also hampered by their inventions. So in one movie, uh, the more, one of the more famous ones, Nine Days of a Year, the, ultimately the nuclear physicist um, is ir- irradiated. And at the end of the movie, it seems like he will undergo surgery, but it's unclear that he will survive the surgery because he had exposed himself to lethal levels of radiation. So not exactly a happy ending. And, um, and then scientists who devised um, their own inventions, uh, in particular, there are two movies about scientists inventing robots. Um, ro- the robots eventually gain their own consciousness and start wreaking havoc on unsuspecting Soviet citizens and their own creators who are ultimately unable to control the robots. So ironically, even though science was supposed to be the realm in which men could um, exert influence and power, also proved to be a field in which they were impotent either against the official apparatus or against their own creations and their own science. But as you know, it also they're in part to blame, right? Because they put so much faith in science to the point where they're not able to balance their scientific careers with other aspects of their lives. You're you're absolutely correct um, that it's, it's particularly in the movies about robots. The robots end up being better uh, at humanity than the scientists themselves because they understand they don't have the answers. And that the flaw wasn't in the robots as much as it was in those who designed them. So um, that points to the need for self-examination and a need for emotional growth and emotional intelligence. Okay, so let's move on to chapter six. And here you talk about uh, the Soviet new wave. So um, you place the Soviet new wave within the context of other film movements, particularly the British new wave, the Czech new wave, and uh, the Polish film school. So could you tell us what the similarities among these different waves are and also the differences? Absolutely. Um, so I think the the Soviet new wave isn't necessarily a, a new concept, but 
I um, draw attention to the fact that even though that the Soviet new wave wasn't necessarily as inventive in terms of cinema techniques, right? The, the French new wave in particular is, is famous for um, cinemagraphic inventions and innovations. But um, I think of these new waves as also being very relevant in terms of their gender politics and the new waves being as much an artistic movement as it was a political movement of reordering or re-envisioning reality. So what they, what they all had in common was a distancing from the ornamental cinemas of the pre-war period that, um, take, that took their cues from Hollywood. Um, and anybody who's seen Stalinist movies um, and their epic scale and design and music and orchestra, um, all of that was taken apart. And, and what the attempt was, was to lay humanity bare. And, and that also translated into a pretty minimal cinema, cinematic techniques so that there would be location shoots that you would try to work as much as possible with amateurs rather than, um, than, uh, professionally trained actors, that the script would try to hew as closely as possible to <laughs> actual conversations that people had on the street, um, and that often you filmed people um, who weren't necessarily aware that they were being filmed. So this emphasis on a kind of authenticity, sincerity, um, on simply being real and having a documentary style approach to filmmaking. Um, and I think what, what they all had in common to me aside the, the stylistics is the fact that they all presented men as being um, lost or somehow unmoored in this, in this modern world. So for example, um, I made a comparison um, of two of the Soviet and French films, uh, sorry, Soviet and Polish films that examined World War II as not a place where men were made heroes, but where men were actually trapped in, in a kind of a hell. And that this wasn't a place where men won victories, but simply where men survived. And in my comparison with uh, Italian film, that um, modern life was deeply alienating for men in modern life was the place where, where relationships go to die and men cannot possibly hope to find any kind of true connection, uh, in particularly in, in the romantic case. So it was a very existential period for, for cinema in the sense that even though cinema was going through a golden era in a lot of ways, it depicted men in uh, at their at their most humblest, weakest, and most defeated, um, but did so in in original and innovative ways. Yeah, and as a follow up, could you name one or two films that would illustrate what you described? So in uh, Chukhrai's uh, Sudbat Chalavieka or Fate of a Man, uh, this is the movie that talks about. Um, World War II being essentially the crucible for Soviet manhood and that simply to survive, 
and emerge from the war with once humanity unscathed, that was the true victory. And the movie uh, Three Days of uh, Viktor Chernyshov, in this movie, um, all we get is really three prosaic days in a life of a young urban Soviet worker. And um, one of the most emblematic sentences that the character utters in the film is that he says in a police interview after he's arrested for um, accosting a innocent bystander, he simply says, I don't know, I'm just like everybody else. And he really doesn't have a sense of who he is as a person and what he believes and what the future holds for him. And you almost sympathize with him because he his his youth seems to be lost um, and not for the lack of trying. He's really trying to find a way for himself much in the way um, the protagonist and fate of a man is trying to find his way out of the war. So there's this existential crisis, as you see in some of the other, obviously, new wave films, and also this quest for meaning that continues to elude the characters. And I think that's very much um, the reason why we see this in European cinemas more generally, is that they're all grappling with this notion of meaning after World War II. So after the, the crimes of Nazi Germany become apparent, after Stalinist crimes become publicized, after Hiroshima and Nagasaki become uh, a part of uh, global consciousness, it really begs the question of this, uh, as you said, existential meaning. And in all areas of life and across the continent, cinematographers are asking themselves, through their characters about, you know, what is what is all this for and what ideals are we really living and serving? Yeah, and I find it striking that it's occurring uh, around the same time throughout the continent. It's kind of a general phenomenon that characterizes filmmaking, West and East. So, And you said in terms of differences, I think that's the, you know, Soviet filmmakers as brave and as united as they were, they couldn't go as far in terms of depicting, um, you know, vulgar language or um, compromising scenes when it came to uh, amorous relationships. Um, So they really couldn't go as far as their Western counterparts did in, in Britain and France and Italy. But I think they all spoke to the same uh, anxiety about existential dread. So I think Often we, we bypass Soviet cinema because it didn't have this, this level of uh, expressiveness and it didn't go as far because it, it, d- despite of how strong Soviet filmmakers were, they still, there were still limits they couldn't overcome. Um, but I make the argument that despite that, um, I think the, the core of their existential uh, anxiety united them all. Yeah, and I think you convincingly argue for the importance of placing these films within this broader post-war European framework. And so that while the films are created for particular audiences, they have resonance in a way that's universal because they're speaking to a particular post-war condition. 
Okay, let's move on to the epilogue. And here you examine what happens to the superfluous man. And you're particularly focused on the late 60s and 70s. And you talk about a new hero. So could you tell us what masculinity looks like on cinema screens under Brezhnev? Absolutely. Um, so the, the story generally goes that um, after Khrushchev is ousted in 1964, and Brezhnev takes over. Um, by 1968, there is a sense that there's a re-Stalinization of Soviet society. So this return to tradition, stability, to an end to questioning of official norms and dogmas. And this certainly plays out in cinema that after the invasion of Prague in 1968, there's certainly an increase in films that are being censored and that are ultimately placed uh, as in the Soviet parlance on the shelf, that they are permanently censored, not to be seen again until the Glasnost period. So that certainly holds true. And it certainly holds true that um, one of the most popular TV miniseries of the Brezhnev era um, the uh, 17 Moments of Spring features a um, Soviet spy in Nazi Germany who goes by the name of Stirlitz. And he's definitely, on the surface, a reemergence of the Stalinist hypermasculine hero who is really only dedicated to his mission, to his country, to his party. Um, emotions and personal life don't really define him. And he is above all defined uh, by his acts of, of bravery and loyalty. So on the surface, it see, certainly seems that Stirlitz embodies the re-Stalinization of Soviet culture and uh, the reappearance of a Stalinist masculinity. But what you have at the same time is that even though Stierlitz is very accomplished and he manages to, uh, to successfully accomplish many of the missions uh, that inquire a lot of daring, he's really before, else, uh, before anything else a thinker. And you don't see him in a James Bond kind of way of accomplishing amazing acts of, um, of bravery that require acrobatics or um, a lot of explosives. And so you see him in contemplation almost exclusively. Um, and there was a contemporary who said, uh, maybe this is a political thriller, maybe it's a psychological thriller, or maybe it's not a thriller at all. And, um, and there were many jokes that were made about Stierlitz and about his powers of deduction. So... Uh, for example, um, there's a joke of Stierlitz going into a sauna with his uh, German comrade, and he's wearing underwear that have uh, the hammer and the sickle on them. And uh, his German friend asks him where he got the underwear, and he says, I got it in Moscow, and then thinks to himself, I hope I didn't give away too much. And so there's this ironic removal from the fact that Stierlitz is this super spy hero. So that even though he was popular, on some level, 
uh, Soviet citizens understood that this that Stirlitz as as a masculine character was a kind of hyperbole. And so my argument is that obviously things have changed, and on some level, audiences grew tired of these brooding heroes who kept, you know, walking on the streets of Moscow. Um, reciting poetry and thinking about the big questions in life and then wanted men of action. But nonetheless, they couldn't accept Stierlitz as an embodiment of this, um, of this reemergence to honest masculinity entirely seriously. So that my, my argument is that really um, the 60s had done a, a number on Soviet masculinity that Stalinist men as they existed under Stalin could never really exist again in the way they had before. Right. So it was impossible to return to the type of masculinity that you would have seen in the 50s and obviously in the 40s and 30s as well under Stalin. Okay, so we don't have much time. So I was wondering if you could take the next couple of minutes and discuss your new research project with our listeners. Absolutely. So I think I am staying close to the study of masculinity, and I'm switching tracks in terms of uh, going to my uh, home country or former home country of Yugoslavia. And what I'm really interested in is this notion of um, willing executioners and ordinary men and where the line between those two lies. Um, I was... Since, since I uh, emigrated to America in 96 after the wars, uh, I kept wondering about um, what precipitated the violence and, and what happened to Yugoslavia in terms of um, neighbors turning on each other. And so I'm really interested in this question of what had happened in the late 1980s or whether what happened in the 1980s could help us explain what happened in the 1990s, or whether the 1990s are really an outcome more directly of um, the elections that took place and the nationalism that emerged in great force in the, um, in the early 90s, rather than tracing it back to the 1980s. Right. And of course, this is a really important topic that's in need of in-depth historical investigation. And I'm sure it's also going to be a very difficult topic to pursue from an emotional perspective. I think you're right. I think that's why I waited this long to try to tackle it. Um, because regardless of how much time passes, uh, it, still, it still feels fresh and immediate. Um, but I feel like it's such an important question to answer, both, both in terms of scholarship, but also for me personally. So... Well, certainly. And I wish you great luck in working on that next project. And I'd like to thank you for taking time to speak with me today. It's really been a fascinating conversation. I really enjoyed your book and recommend it highly to all of our listeners. Well, thank you so much for having me and, and for your excellent questions and um, letting me speak a little bit about a topic that I care greatly about. Thank you, Joe.